Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. We began last Sunday our series through these first three chapters, the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and that is the setting, the Apostle John, who was exiled to this little rocky island out in the Aegean Sea called Patmos, receives a series of visions from the Lord Jesus. In fact, he describes himself as being in the spirit, that is, he was able to see the spiritual realm in a way that we normally uh, can't see. He was on the Lord's Day, it was a Sunday, that he received this first vision, and he was uh, instructed to write down the message that the Lord Jesus gave to him concerning each of these seven churches. And we're going to walk through one at a time, taking one letter each week, and today we come to the message to the church at Ephesus. It's verses 1 through 7 of Revelation chapter 2. Let's read that text now. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now in each of these letters, the Lord Jesus identifies himself as the author using terminology that we find in chapter one. And so he is really the author of the letters. John simply writes down what the Lord tells him to say. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Which, by the way, no one knows who the Nicolaitans were exactly. Uh, Most likely they were a sect that emerged. Uh, There is some secular writing that say they were particularly immoral, sinful. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. The church at Ephesus. Now, we just celebrated a new church in Euless, Texas. But I'll give you a little hint. They're not the only church in Euless, Texas. Just like First Baptist Keller is not nearly the only church in Keller, Texas. But in the first century, uh, most cities and most regions were fortunate to have one church. And so they could easily identify them by their geography. And so the church at Ephesus is in who's in mind here. Now, you know quite a bit more than you may think you do about the city of Ephesus. You've been in church most of your life. The city of Ephesus was located in the southwest corner of Asia Minor. Remember we said last week that Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. It had a harbor just three miles from the city center, and there was a grand avenue that was built. And so they would unload these uh, cargo ships, and then they would proceed in the city which was a center of commerce, and it created great wealth. And people moved there, and they had a great population, probably over half a million people at its height. And 
that great wealth unfortunately led to great wickedness because not only was it a commercial center, it was a religious center. And the, the grand center of the city was this temple to this wicked goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility and love and really sex. And that is how they worshiped Artemis or Diana, as she was sometimes called, is through sexual relations with these temple prostitutes who commerced in and around. And so these uh, traders would come in and it was a place of indescribable wickedness. Well, that was the setting in which the Lord planted a church. And this lighthouse of truth was set amidst all of that debauchery. But even though that was certainly a difficult place to plant a church, they had some great advantages. Uh, they had a very solid beginning. In fact, in Acts chapter 18, we read about that none other than the Apostle Paul is the one that planted the church, at least through him. <clears throat> Remember that Paul was traveling and he was on his way from Corinth. And uh, they stopped off in Ephesus. And scripture says they came to Ephesus and he left them there. That is, Paul left off some other people, namely Aquila and Priscilla. And he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Well, the Lord did will it. Paul came back, spent a long period of time training people. And those people that he had discipled and trained spread out through that entire region and planted churches. And the Lord used them in a great way. And so they had a great beginning. If Paul was your, your planter, that's a good start. Aquila and Priscilla, two of the great men and women, a couple that the Lord used greatly. And through Aquila and Priscilla, they discipled a young man named Apollos, who went on to be one of the great preachers of the first century. They also had a great legacy of pastors. Paul personally trained their pastor, a young man by the name of Timothy. We have two of the letters that Paul wrote to encourage Timothy in our New Testament canon. And then later on, <clears throat> none other than the Apostle John ministered there. In fact, that's where he probably ended his earthly ministry before being exiled to Patmos. And so they had a great legacy and a great history. But added to that, they also had another great advantage. They had freedom. The city of Ephesus was granted a very special uh, state by the Roman government is that they proclaimed them a free city. That is, they could do things other entities didn't enjoy. And so you put all those things together, a great start, great pastors, great beginning and freedom. I'm reminded of what the scripture says that to whom much is given, much is required. And so I don't think it's coincidental that the Lord begins his correspondence to the seven churches at Asia with the church at Ephesus. Now let's look next at what sort of church it was from our Lord's perspective. Well, the scripture tells us that uh, they had some great attributes. Look at verse two. Jesus commends them for some things they were getting right. He says, I know your deeds. And by the way, when Jesus says, I know something about you, he really does. He's omniscient. In fact, this Greek word that's used is very intense and it speaks of a deep, complete and total knowledge. He says, I know your deeds and your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false. And then later on, as I said in verse 6, he points out one particular sect, the Nicolaitans, that they recognized as false and rejected them. And Jesus said, that's a good thing. And so as you look at their attributes, they're hard workers. And by the way, ministry is hard work if it's done well. 
And that's why I told Brother Casey, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And I think he would tell you, it has been. But they were also patient. Their perseverance and patient is mentioned twice in back-to-back verses. That is, they remain solid and steadfast in the midst of all of the sin going on all around. They were to be commended for that. And they had spiritual discernment. I think if there's anything lacking in the evangelical church today, it is spiritual discernment. That so many of our people are so easily duped by anyone claiming to be a Christian or a pastor who's written a book or gives a seminar, opens a church, that if they say they're legitimate, so many in our congregation just say they must be. But you remember that uh, Paul commended the church at Berea because when he preached to them, they went home and compared what he said to the word. And friends, that's what you need to do. When anyone preaches from this pulpit, including your pastor, compare it to what the word has to say. And if it doesn't line up with the word, don't reject the word, reject the pastor. And so they did that. They were discerning. And by the way, I told someone this week, many of our evangelical churches would have to improve greatly to be compared to the church at Ephesus, and yet they were far from perfect. In fact, there's this uh, conjunction here that changes everything at verse 4. Look at it. He says, but. He says, you're doing a lot of good things, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Now, that word, but, is a very important word in the New Testament. It can be used for good or bad. For example, in Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about his life before he was saved, how he was a persecutor of the church. He was in rebellion against God. He says, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach in him among the Gentiles, I do not immediately consult with flesh and blood. God had different plans for Paul's life. I think of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, for you were once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. And then I, I think uh, a great passage to see this is in Ephesians chapter 2. So let, let's turn there. I want you to see this with your own eyes because we're going to come back to the book of Ephesians in just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 2, you heard Brother Ted quote a prayer from chapter 3. But in chapter 2, Paul is describing the condition of every person before they're born again. And we don't ever need to forget what we were before we were saved. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He says we were just as rotten as the rest of the world, and don't you forget it. And then he comes to verse 4, but God. That's an important word, isn't it? Even when we were dead in sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. But as we go back to Revelation chapter 2, that word also can rebuke us. He says, you're doing some great things. You're working hard. You're practicing discernment and discipline. But I have this thing against you that you've left your first love. This is his assessment of the church at Ephesus. And remember, 
These letters were de delivered to the pastors to be read to the congregation. And I'm sure they were waiting with bated breath to hear what Brother John had to say, the Lord Jesus through Brother John. And there, I'm sure there was joy and some of this when they said, you're doing great. And then he comes and he says, but. Can you imagine how that stung when it was read aloud to the congregation? The words of the Lord Jesus that he has somewhat against them. Now, not one of us, I suspect, likes to be rebuked. Even less do we like to be rebuked publicly. But sometimes it's necessary. It's called for. Because what he's addressing here is a sin. It's not some overt sin that's easily noticed, but rather the sin of omission. It's failing to do what they knew to do was right. And the sins of omission are somewhat hard to diagnose diagnosed from human beings because we can observe overt immorality. We can observe drunkenness and debauchery. It's hard to observe someone's heart growing cold because we can cover it up. We can't cover it up from Jesus, even though it's a little more subjective than some of the other sins. Thankfully, as I said earlier, Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knows us. So what had happened? Well, he doesn't give a lot of details, but Apparently, there, there was a failure among the church at Ephesus to fan the flame of God's love. And it probably included, fundamentally, their love for Christ and Christ's church and His work on earth. And it struck me this week, having read this numerous times, that it is very possible to do good things with a cold heart. And apparently, that's what was happening in the church at Ephesus. They'd lost their first love. Now, what does the New Testament say about love? Well, John 3.16 says it's what motivated God the Father to send Jesus to die in our place. For God so loved the world. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4 that it is the identification badge of believers. You well know them by their love one for another. It's the first of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. And the Bible indicates that it's more important than even Great spiritual gifts. Paul says, if I have not love, all these other things are nothing. But what does it mean to love Christ? What does it mean to lose the first love? Well, love for Christ or, or any entity, especially love for Christ, is not simply emotional. We stress that here all the time when it comes to marriage. That it's not just how you feel about your spouse. It's a decision to put their best interests first every day. Love is not simply emotional, but it is at least that, isn't it? You see, by now, the church at Ephesus had existed for several decades. This is about 95 AD. Uh, some in the church were likely still first generation. They remembered Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, but likely most of them were second generation Christians. That is, they grew up in the church. And what happens sometimes with second generation Christians is that they become people who do their Christian works out of duty. It becomes old hat. It becomes rote. We just do it because we've always done it. But there's no love. There's no passion behind it. Now, again, compare that to a love for a spouse. Sometimes Unfortunately, I will have a husband 
coming to my office, he'll say, I just don't love my wife like I used to. And you know what I say to him? I hope not. Because I can tell you, I certainly don't love my wife like I used to after 17 years of marriage. Because when I first began to love my wife, I loved her because of her beauty, her grace, her elegance, and her sweet Christian spirit. But after 17 years, I don't love her like I used to. I love her much more deeply, having experienced 17 years of life with her, having watched her suffer four times, bringing our four children into the world, watching her give up her career for her family, watching her take care of our daughter with special needs, nursing me back to health after multiple surgeries, watching her grow in sanctification every day, getting up before the rest of us to read her Bible. No, I don't love my wife like I used to. Thank the Lord. Because what is true about my relationship with my wife is, is really a microcosm of sanctification. Sanctification in reality is growing more in love with Jesus over a lifetime. And the Apostle Paul seemed to understand that. He knew that it was possible to love Jesus more and more, even after decades of being a believer. Let's go back to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, Brother Ted quoted this. He didn't know I was going to read it. Thank you, Brother Ted. Paul stopped twice in six chapters to pray. That's what a man of prayer he was. And in his second prayer, found in chapter 3, verse 14, he prays, for their sanctification. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. That's what had happened in the church at Ephesus. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length in height and depth. And apparently that second generation of Ephesians believers weren't getting that. Because here's the truth. If you really are walking closely with the Lord, there's more of him to learn about all the time, isn't there? There's new facets of that walk to interest you. And if you're walking closely and if you're fan fanning the flame of love, you won't grow bored. It won't become old hat. It won't be road. It won't be service out of duty. And he says, verse 19, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is, they became satisfied at a certain point of sanctification. They got to a point in their sanctification, they said, that's about as far as I care to go. And so they stopped being curious about the Lord. They just went through the motions and were waiting on heaven. And friends, that can happen to any person, that can happen to any church. But thanks be to God, there is an antidote, isn't there? Isn't the Lord gracious? He didn't leave them in their sin. He didn't say, look, you've grown cold, I'm writing you off. Here's what he said, verse 5, Therefore, because you've grown cold, remember from where you've fallen and repent 
And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Three things. They all start with R. Easy to remember. First of all, he says, remember. That is, go back in your mind to when you were first were born again. Do you, do you remember it? Can you do that with me now? Just go back in your mind when you first were saved. You remember how excited you were about the things of God? How you couldn't wait to get to church on Sunday? How you read your Bible, you kept it with you all the time. In case you got a few minutes at lunch, you bring it out. You listen to sermons on the radio and by tape. But over time, the things of life began to crowd out the affection that is owed only to the Lord Jesus Christ. And before you know it, I don't think they intended to do that. They didn't set out to say, how can I grow cold? Any more than husbands and wives set out on their wedding day to see how can I ruin this thing. Jesus tells them, this is serious. You've got to remember, go back and do those things you used to do. Read the Bible. Pray, I take it. Fellowship with believers. Not only remember, he, he says, uh, repent. So, so repentance is not just saying I'm wrong. It's changing behavior. I'm going this way and I turn around and I start walking in the other direction. I do things differently. So I often say to people in counseling, very kindly, of course. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing the same way, expecting a different result. And so if we keep going down the same path we've been on and thinking it's going to get better, it won't. We've got to change. We've got to do things differently. That's what repentance is. And, and then the third R word is removal. There is a threat from Jesus that if you don't repent... I'm going to remove your candlestick. Remember, the candlestick represented their light in the world. Now, he's not saying, I'm going to take your salvation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, according to Romans. He's saying, I'm going to take away your usefulness in the world as a church. That is, you're going to cease to be a church. And friends, I can't think of anything more frightening to me than the Lord would, as an individual, set me on the shelf and say, I can't use you anymore. And I can't think of anything more frightening for our congregation than the Lord to say, look, been around about 138 years, but that's it. You've lost your first love. Can't use you any longer. But he says, repent. He calls us. He's, he's willing and, and ready to forgive us and to use us again. And so, so here is um, this promise that comes in verse 7. Look at it. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And it goes from the corporate, he's speaking to the church, to the individual. To him who overcomes. He's not speaking here, friends, of some super set of Christians, as one commentator I read this week, that that they will all go to heaven, but only a superset of Christians will get to eat of the tree of life. No, that's not what he's saying. Tree of life represents eternal life. The Bible says, he that perseveres to the end will be saved. We prove that we're genuinely born again, that we don't stop before the finish line. And this is what he's saying to them. Don't stop. Keep going. And remember, we've said from Daniel to Revelation that the purpose of apocalyptical literature in the Bible is to encourage us to keep on until the finish line. So finally, in our time we have left today, I'm going to make some application here. 
I mentioned just a minute ago that our church here in Keller is 138 years old. I think we have a lot of similarities to the church at Ephesus. We had a good foundation. Those uh, families that left Mount Gilead Baptist Church back in 1882 and came over near the railroad track because they knew people would be moving here. And they started this church. By the way, God uses people to accomplish His purposes, doesn't He? I would be remiss if I didn't say one of the primary reasons from a human perspective that Foundation Baptist Church is thriving is that four families from First Baptist Keller agreed to move their membership over there. And we're praying that the Lord would give us future opportunities to do that again. Like the church at Ephesus, we had a good reputation. And like the church at Ephesus, in many ways, I think we have a good reputation. As I travel around the state of Texas and to the Southern Baptist Convention, when I tell people what church I attend, they say, oh, we know that church. They're known for sound doctrine. They teach the truth. They love the Bible. They're people of discernment. They recognize false teaching. And they work hard, like the church at Ephesus. They, there's ministries going on all the time. They're a beehive of activity. They, they send out missionaries all over the world. All those things are, are great things. But those things were true of the church at Ephesus, weren't they? Jesus didn't deny they were hard workers. He didn't deny, deny that they were discerning when it came to the Scripture. They just, he said, your heart's grown cold. It's a heart check to us today as individual believers, but the church is, is made up of individual believers living in the same geographical area. And so when you go to the doctor and you get a heart checkup, he likely asks you some diagnostic questions. How's your diet? Are you exercising? Are you getting enough sleep? And so I want to ask us some diagnostic questions today. Why are you doing what you're doing in the church? Why are you going on that mission trip next summer? Why do you teach preschool Sunday school? Why are you a deacon? Why are you a pastor? Is it out of duty? Because you've done it so long you don't know how not to do it? Did someone guilt you into doing it? Are you doing it to please mama? Are you doing it to carry on some legacy passed down from your grandparents? some tradition? Are you doing it out of red-hot love for the Savior? See, it's possible to do good things with a cold heart. That was Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees, wasn't it? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We can fool each other. We can fool each other for a long time. We can't fool the Lord. He says, uh, verse 2, I know your deeds. Not only does he know our deeds, he knows our, our motives. We can't fool him, and so we might as well just be honest with him and say, Lord, uh, what was true of the church at Ephesus is, is true of me. There was a time in my life where I loved the things of God, and I loved to gather with the Lord's people, and I loved to use my spiritual gifts, but my heart's grown cold. I, I remember how it was. Lord, I, I want to get back to that. Will you help me? He'll honor that prayer. He will. He, he wants to honor that prayer, but you have to repent. You can't just say it. You have to make some changes. You have to, as he says, go back and do the things you did at first. That is when you were first believer. You develop those habits, those disciplines of giving generously 
and serving faithfully and, and reading studiously. And then there's one more R I want to add before we close. That is rejoice. I don't want you to leave here today downtrodden. Even if I've just described you to a T, you don't have to leave here in that condition. What I've just described is sin. Remember, we, we tend to think of sins as acts, overt acts that you can observe with the five senses. But the Bible places sin into two broad categories. Yes, there's the overt acts of breaking the commandments of God. But then there's also the category of the sins of omission. The Bible says if we know to do right and do it not to him, it is what? Sin. If we know we ought to serve the Lord passionately, if we know we ought to fan the flames of love for the Lord and his church and his work and we don't, it is sin. So what is the antidote for all sin? It's confession and repentance. And here's what I want you to rejoice about. This same John wrote these words, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, <laughs> cleanse us from all unrighteousness, sins of commission, sins of omission. The Lord says, if you'll do that, he'll continue to use us. And that is my prayer for myself, my prayer for each individual member of First Baptist Keller. And it is my overarching prayer for our entire congregation as we move forward after the COVID-19 virus. Will you join me in that prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I think all of us can relate. Maybe there's times, even protracted periods in our lives as believers where we're not walking close to you. Lord, we always know it's not because you moved. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Something has changed within us. And so, Father, where we have failed to fan the flame of love, Will you forgive us? We confess it. We receive your forgiveness that you promised. Lord, I would pray you would restore some here today who have grown ice cold in their walk with you in recent months. Would you renew that zeal, that passion that once existed? Father, that we would continue to do the right things, to, to plant churches and send out missionaries and evangelize the lost and train up children in righteousness, but that we would do it not motivated by duty, not motivated by legacy or tradition, but that we would do it because we can't help but do it because we love you so much. Change our hearts today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.